Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Good morning. Try it again. Good morning. Whether you're here with us in the sanctuary or worshiping with us online, I think if you've been with us for any period of time, you know that all last year we took a look at one thing, and that was the kingdom of God. This year we're taking a look at the kingdom of God, how do you live in it? And so what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to take a look at three parables that Jesus teaches in rapid fire succession, and he teaches them for a very specific reason. Now, many of you, again, if you've been part of City, you know that we have table groups that are meeting all throughout the community, around the county, in dorm rooms. They're meeting in, they're meeting in uh, apartments and in homes. And people are gathering over the next six weeks or have been already gathering for six weeks to answer the question, what is the good life? And so we're utilizing parables to upload to us what Jesus wants us to know about what the good life is. And so we picked six parables that we're going to be focusing on. And this morning is there's a little mini-series in the greater How Do You Live in the Kingdom of God series entitled Kingdom Wisdom. We're going to take a look at the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Now, as we do every Sunday, I'm going to ask that you would stand with me, and we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer out loud together. So if you would please stand. And again, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer out loud together. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, the center of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us this prayer. This then is how you should pray. Let's pray out loud. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Take a moment, turn, give your neighbor a high five, fist bump, hug or a handshake, greet one another. Again, you can be seated. So for those of you who know the scriptures, and you notice that I just listed we're going out loud that we're going to go through three parables, the lost sheep, coin, and son, you know a lot of scripture. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read through all of the parables. And here's what's interesting to note. That the first line that we read is going to say that these people had an issue with Jesus. And then he told them or taught them this parable, singular. So just so you know, in the Greek, the idea is all three of these parables are actually one parable. You're supposed to read them together. They're a unit So, we're going to go ahead and read out loud these three parables, more text than we normally read, and then we're going to jump in. So, the parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son. Here we go. Ready? All right, here we go. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you 
has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Parable of the lost coin. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully till she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in the repentance of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then last, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property among them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. By the way, the accurate translation is expensive living. Reading on. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen in that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine who was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And if you know, that parable goes on where it brings in the story of the older brother. We stopped here where there's celebration over the son coming home. By the way, how many of you have an older brother? Raise your hand really high. How many of you know they just mess things up anyway, right? So with that said, we're just going to stick with the younger brother who's the best by far. That would be me, by the way. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to think about what's happening in these parables in relationship to our lives in the kingdom. What I want you to do is take a moment and think about the last time you lost something that was important to you. I want you to pause and think about it. You lost something. Now, it's most likely important for one of three reasons. The first one is it's value. It's expensive. The second reason might be is that you need it to function. 
The third one might be it has meaning or value to you that goes way beyond finances. It could be it's valuable to you because it's very meaningful. Maybe your grandfather gave you something, or, and it's worth far more than what the money is to you. So that's the three realities that make something important to us. Now, if you are at all like I am, when I lose something and I can't find it, there's this subterranean grind in your soul until you do find it. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You, you misplace something, and it's just in your subconscious. And every once in a while, you'll go, ah, oh, I wish I could find that thing. Well, the thing that I lose the most, and I confess this before God, man, and my wife, are the keys to the car. We have a drawer right when we walk through the front door, and that's where all the keys are supposed to go. They're not supposed to go in the bedroom, not in your coat pocket. Where? In the drawer when you walk through the front door, but rarely ever do they find their way there. And so what happens is, is I'll be late going somewhere. I run out to get in the car, can't find the keys, lost the keys. And what's the first thing, men, every one of us that are married says to ourselves when we can't find the keys? What did Fran do with my keys? Am I right? Instantly you go there. Last time, though, I lost only the key fob. I was actually at a UVA soccer game, and walking to the car very quickly, I was spinning my keys around my finger, and it's a true story. Got to the car, and I looked, and the fob was gone, and I had walked probably half a mile. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. So I text Fran, and I humbled myself and admitted I'd lost them again. And I texted her and said, you might have to come pick me up because I can't find the key fob. And I go all the way back to the security people, and I said, hey, listen, can I go back into the stadium? They usually won't let you back in. I need to find the key fob. And the lady turns and goes, you won't believe it. Someone just gave it to me, and I turned it in. I was like, thank you, Jesus. There's a God in heaven. I have found my right? But the idea is that's something that's functional. It's 250 bucks to replace it, but besides the money, it's functional. Now, Jesus weaves these parables that would be so soul-captivating for his audience because there's something that they understand about culture that we miss when we read them. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But the question becomes, why does Jesus tell the parables in the first place? And here's why. I want you to notice in Luke 15, 1 through 2. The reason why Jesus tells the parables is a response to the following. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man, what's the problem here? He welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Real quickly, what are Pharisees? Pharisees are religious leaders that lost control of the temple in Jerusalem to the Sadducees. So essentially what they're doing is they're taking the legal code for the priests and those that serve in the temple and they're pushing those on and mapping those over all the people of Israel, believing that, well, now God will visit us everywhere if we all live like priests, essentially. That's what they do. Teachers of the law are what is also known as scribes. They're scribes. The Greek word is grammateos. They're into grammar. 
They know the law of God. They know when it's not being announced right, taught right, read right. And so when Jesus is teaching, you have the Pharisees who are watching the legal code. You have the, the, the scribe or the teachers of the law who are sitting there. They're listening to every word he says, and they're observing him, scrutinizing him, and they want to step in and correct him if he's wrong. And they say, here's the problem. It isn't his teaching. It's that he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. What's interesting to note is the Greek word here for welcomes is pros decamai. Pros means active and decamai means to receive. And so it has the sense of actively waiting, what sounds like an oxymoron. It isn't. You do it all the time. It's where you know someone's going to come to your house and what do you do while you're actively waiting for them to arrive? What do you do? You prepare for them. You get the vacuum cleaner out. You clean up. You straighten up. You, you maybe shop. My daughter's here in town with a friend for the weekend. We go to the grocery store. We try to make sure everything's ready. We are actively waiting. And what's utterly amazing is Jesus has been doing this for sinners. He went to the grocery store. He got some food for them. He cleaned up the house. He's got everything ready, and he is going to be welcoming them in. And the problem the Pharisees and the scribes have is that it's very clear Jesus didn't just stumble on these people. He was providing hospitality to them. And by the way, in the ancient world, if you provided hospitality to someone and they weren't, they weren't clean, they were a sinner, you might give them food, but you would never welcome them in or eat with them. So Jesus has gone way past charity. This isn't about charity. This is about Jesus inviting people into his world. Now, because they're struggling with this, Jesus now tells these parables. Here's the first one. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now, here's what we can't tell, but here's what's happening. Religious leaders are known as shepherds in the ancient world. King David was the shepherd of Israel. The priests are to shepherd the people. God is known as the shepherd in the Older Testament. And so the Pharisees and the scribes are supposed to be shepherds. And Jesus, in sitting there with these sinners, weaves a parable, and he looks at the leaders and says, suppose one of you has lost a sheep. In other words, Jesus is saying, the reason why I'm having to do this is because you've lost them. You're to blame that these people are lost, and now I'm having to go find them. Do you catch this? And so as Jesus weaves this parable... He says to them, now isn't it the case that one of you has a hundred sheep and you've lost one and you lost them and doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it and they all go, no. That's not what we do. We stay with the 99. We don't go after the lost sheep. We hunker down right here. And Jesus goes, that's not how the kingdom works. Jesus, in turn, is talking about leaving the 99, and notice in the text what it says. It says, when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, here's what he does. 
he picks the sheep up and he puts it over his shoulders. Why? When a sheep gets lost, so the shepherds tell all the biblical people that when a sheep gets lost truly in the wilderness, it freezes up, it can't move, it becomes immobile and lies down. It won't follow. You literally have to pick it up and put it on your shoulders. Now, here's what's utterly amazing. It was hundreds of years after Jesus' death that the symbol of Christianity became the cross. In the first century, we have relics where the symbol of Christianity is a shepherd with a sheep over its shoulder. The cross comes many, many years later. The Christian theme was always the shepherd who goes to seek for lost sheep. That's what was the theme of faith. And so Jesus weaves this parable. And notice in the text, he says, then Jesus told them, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. It's very clear the message that Jesus is trying to send. They would refuse to go out and look for the lost sheep, but that's why he has come. Then we go on to the parable of the lost coin. In this parable we read, the text says, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin." And in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Now, here's what's interesting to note. The coin that she has lost isn't just one-tenth of what she has. She has ten. Notice we've gone from one out of a hundred to now one out of ten. The number's getting smaller. The last parable, there's one out of two. But in one out of ten, she loses a silver coin, and she's panicked. Believe it or not, it's not to do with the value of the money. It's that as a Bedouin woman, she had received 10 coins when she got married. She would take those 10 silver coins and she would put them on a veil that she would wear in public. And if she loses one of them, it shows she's an irresponsible wife, that she can't keep track of things. So can you imagine the panic in her life when she looks at her veil and there's a missing coin. And so she sweeps and she hunts and she searches. And when she finds it, that's why the neighbors rejoice too because the men are out working and she goes to her neighbors and says, rejoice, I found it. I'm still a good wife. And now let's deal with the parable of the lost son. I want you to think through the three parables. Lost sheep. Can a sheep lose itself? It can, but the onus is on the shepherd. Can a coin ever lose itself? No. Someone has to lose the coin. There are people that are lost to the kingdom because of what other people have done to them. This is key. I want you to catch this. The first one is the shepherd is not observing the sheep properly, loses one. The second one is a coin, and a coin can't lose itself. Now, what about a rebellious son? Can they lose themselves? 100% they can. How many of you were one? 
How many of you still are one? How many of you have something to confess? The idea here, though, is is that Jesus now begins to talk about how the kingdom functions. And in every sermon, we have feet to our faith. And all I want to do for feet to our faith is read the parable of the prodigal or lost son and explain it to us as we go. Feet to our faith. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property among them. Just so you know, this is culturally unthinkable. It literally means in the ancient world that the younger son wishes dad were dead. Because when do you get your inheritance after the father dies? The older brother's the behor. He would get two-thirds of the estate. The younger brother gets one-third. And the text is very clear, is that the dad, out of generosity, he provides what the son asks for, and he bears the shame of the wicked request of his son. Reading on, not long after that, the son got together all he had. What that means is he had inherited property that was in his family for generations, and he has sold it. He sold it to get the money. So he has now publicly shamed his dad. Everyone knows he inherited land, but he sold it, and he is literally rejecting his family. Read on. And he sets off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Again, it's actually expensive living. It's the, younger, it's the older brother later, which we're not reading about, that declares he spent all the money on prostitute and wine. It's not what the text says here. Reading on it says, after he had spent everything, there was a famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. So now he's a Jewish man living among an unclean animal, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands or hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. Interesting. You see, there's someone who was knowing the grace and the love and the generosity of God, but has made the choice to leave. And they leave. And when they run out and they have nothing but fumes, they begin to look back to the kingdom and go, it was actually better there. And so now they're making the decision to come home. Now reading on, here's what happens. I will set out and go back to my father and I'm going to say to him, how many of you have known that when you are guilty, you work up a speech in order to try to get back in good graces. Have you ever done that? Doing the same. But I want you to listen carefully to what he says. What he says is, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Now notice, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And listen, here's what he's doing. He's going through all four phases of Jewish repentance. There's four phases to it. The first phase is you admit what you've done is wrong. Number two, you go to the person and make restitution. 
After you've made restitution, number three, the next thing that you do is you have a plan to never do it again, and you announce the plan. And then number four, then you are brought back into good graces. There are four phases to Jewish repentance. We as Christians, oftentimes, all we do is confess. That's it. Here's what I did wrong. That's only part of it. True repentance has those four phases, and he knows them. So as he's heading back to his dad, he makes up this plan. And so here's what the text says. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And there's so much going on here that exemplifies God the Father, it's mind-blowing. In the ancient world, a wealthy man never ran because his legs would show. And this man tucks up his garments and he takes off running for his son and he meets his son on the edge of town and he's been waiting and looking and staring at the horizon waiting for his son and here's why. Because if the villagers get to his son first, they're gonna beat him to a pulp because he has shamed the entire village along with the dad and they know for sure the dad wants him to beat the boy up. They know it. So the dad runs out and he welcomes his son first and he changes his garments so that when everyone meets him, he knows that the father's forgiven him. That's why he's doing what he's doing. Now read on. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For my son who is dead is alive. And again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. People, You have no clue how much God loves you. None. You have no clue the generosity of God. When you know him and God is your father, he's generous. And if you want to walk off the reservation, he's going to let you do it. But there will come a day where your head will swivel and you will look back at the kingdom. And there are going to be unfaithful voices that will tell you you will never get back in. And I want you to notice that this young boy, he's coming back to his dad and he knows the four things of repentance. Dad, I've sinned against God and you make me one of your hired servants. What he means by that is I'm going to work and work and work until I pay you back. Make me a servant, I'm going to pay off all of it, and then you will restore me to be your son. And what does God the Father do? He short circuits all of it. Once he has confessed, the dad silences him and says, bring the robe, put it on him. Let's stand together. As we stand together, I want us to take a moment and close our eyes. Because in a moment, we're going to sit at a meal with Jesus. It's called communion. It's a meal that he has lovingly and actively prepared for us and has been actively waiting for us to eat this meal with him. But as we prepare our hearts, let's take a moment 
for every man and every woman and everyone online that we would take a moment and present ourselves to God. If there is something to confess, let's confess it. But just know that God stands on his tippy toes watching the horizon for you to come home and to receive you and to love you and to bless you.